Hello and welcome to EndNotes, a WooCast production. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Dr. Laura Kahn. Laura is a physician and research scholar with the Program on Science and Global Security here at Princeton. Her work centers around a One Health initiative, which brings together human, animal, and environmental health specialists to improve the health of all species. Today, we're going to be talking about her book, Who's in Charge? Leadership During Epidemics, Bioterror Attacks, and Other Public Health Crises. While this book was published a decade ago, a second edition was just released with a new preface on leadership during COVID-19, so we think it's really, really relevant for our times today. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks. Great to be here, Rose. So as I said, this couldn't really be a more timely topic as we're watching leaders around the world grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic these past two months or more. Maybe we can begin there. I'd love to hear your evaluation of what we've seen unfold in the United States, China, and then maybe we can get back into some past crises. Well, let's start with China, since that's where the pandemic began. Uh, The leader there is President Xi Jinping. I think it's important to point out that responding perfectly to any kind of public health crisis is a challenge even under the best of circumstances, and it's very hard to get everything right. Right. Uh, That having been said, President Xi Jinping made a number of mistakes, including a lack of transparency, which is extremely important if you want to try and get any kind of containment efforts going. You have to have public understanding and support. And by not communicating well or trying to silence the doctors who sounded the alarm about the worsening crisis, uh, he made things worse. So he was slow to respond, and that was his initial mistake. Um, It's also important to point out that the crisis began right before the Chinese New Year, where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people travel across the country to be with family and friends to celebrate that event. So they were uh, facing that as this uh, pandemic unfolded. Now, in contrast to Xi Jinping, Donald Trump of the United States downplayed the severity of the crisis. He provided false reassurances that everything was okay and would become quickly back to normal in no time did not have any national policies put in place. And in fact, was his administration was in the process of dismantling uh, policies and the teams involved with pandemic response. And he didn't listen to any of his expert advisors that he needed to respond to this. So he squandered about two months, two critical months that he had to uh, get all his ducks in order to um, minimize the number of cases and deaths in the United States. So so today when we're recording this, it's June 2nd and there's a lot going on in the world. Can you touch upon where we're at currently with COVID in terms of leadership and what we're seeing unfold as states begin to reopen? Well, so the United States is a very interesting case because if you 
examine the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution puts public health responsibilities at the state and local level. So that means that governors and mayors are in charge. Now there is one important exception, and that is at the U.S. borders. That is a federal responsibility. So the president then is responsible for keeping diseases out of the U.S. In the late uh, 18th century, President John Adams put into place naval hospitals that had the mission of making sure that returning naval shipmen would not bring in diseases from their travels. That eventually turned into the United States Commissioned Corps, which is a a medical service of uh, commissioned officers. They were the ones that would uh, examine the immigrants coming in at Ellis Island to make sure that nobody brought in any deadly communicable diseases. President Trump did did not call them up to duty or deploy them. That was a critical oversight because when people were flying in from abroad, there was no screening at all. Mm -hmm. There was no mandatory quarantine. People were just coming in and mingling then among the public. So public health border control is a federal responsibility. Uh, Again, in general, though, it's a state and local responsibility. So what we are seeing is every state is doing their own thing uh, based on governor decisions or the decisions of the mayors of major cities. So you're getting a hodgepodge of responses. Some responses are are more robust. That's a good distinction. Uh, So that's what you're seeing now. That's very helpful. Well, maybe we can jump back a little bit and um, get into the book because your book takes a look at some other past health crises like SARS and anthrax attacks and even mad cow disease. When you think back at some of these junctures, what are sort of the common leadership problems that you see as a thread through those and maybe even up till today? Right. Well, in the case of SARS and mad cow and even anthrax, you have to realize that these diseases are caused by zoonotic microbes. Zoonotic meaning that they're diseases of animals that transmit into humans. And so since they are newly emerging, particularly SARS and mad cow, there's not much known about them. They are medical enigmas. As you're seeing now with COVID, it's a scramble internationally to figure out how fast this microbe spreads, how it exactly spreads, what kind of disease it causes, what kind of treatments are possibly effective against them. There's all these unknowns. In contrast to something like influenza that happens every year, it still hits us because you get sometimes a a newly evolved or a mutated virus. But in the case of SARS, it was new. Now SARS and MERS and now COVID-19, they are all coronaviruses. 
and they are well known and well studied by the veterinary communities. In fact, uh, the veterinarians have known about coronaviruses for over a hundred years. And so if people, if leaders actually listen to the experts, the veterinarians, we would understand much more about these newly emerging diseases in human populations. So one of the key leadership problems then is just trying to make effective policies when the science is unclear. And in those situations then, leaders have to rely on common sense, good judgment, and listening to experts, particularly if they are not expert in uh, medicine or science themselves. So that's a key factor of leadership that many uh, political leaders particularly fail on. Well, that actually brings up another question I have, which is, you know, what countries did okay and had, you know, the proper leadership right. that your book explores? The countries that responded well had excellent leaders. In general, the Asian countries, such as Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, even Mongolia, had rapid responses, early lockdowns, widespread testing, contact tracing, quarantine and isolation. Those measures all helped to reduce the number of coronavirus cases and deaths. Some leaders stand out, in particular Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, implemented a swift lockdown uh, and closed her borders. Now it helps that she has an island nation, so that certainly helped to close the country off. But uh, she was also known for having excellent communications and also widespread testing and the other measures that the Asian countries did that kept her country's number of coronavirus cases and deaths to a minimum. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, showed outstanding leadership and communication skills for her country. So there are a number of countries that showed exemplary leadership and their responses and number of cases and deaths uh, reflect their um, their competent leadership. You have to have uh, communication with the public. You have to um, have uh, be transparent. You have to have the public on board with you in terms of your policies, understanding why they're being implemented and trying to be as judicious and transparent as possible. You know, countries that are trying to hide information, punish those who try to warn the public, you know, they're not going to do as well. You have to have a solid chain of command. Here in the United States, we did have a, we do have a chain of command, uh, but uh, Donald Trump didn't follow it. We have the normal chain of command is the president, and then the secretary of health and human services, and then the director of the Centers for Disease Control. We did not have that because the director of uh, Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, did a poor job. He and the head of the uh, Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Robert Redfield, the head of CDC, uh, they really botched the development and deployment of the U.S. testing capabilities, the test kits for COVID. 
Oh yeah. They were, they were faulty kits. And without having early testing, you're in the dark. You do not know how widespread the disease is within your borders. And everybody was uh, flying blind during the early stages of this pandemic. That was a critical uh, mistake, not knowing how widespread the disease was and not being able to test for it. That hindered our ability to respond. Definitely. You know, I want to go back to what you were saying about the scientist-politician connection, because mm-hmm. it seems like there needs to be this sort of right balance between the political leadership and public health leadership. So right. how, can that, how can that be achieved? What, what's the... Well, you know, what, what really strikes me is how any... I mean, I think it's important that anybody can run for office. But if you decide to run for office, you should at least read the Constitution, which provides the country's mission statement, vision statement, and uh, strategic goals and action plans. I mean, our whole legal system is based on the Constitution. If you plan to run for office and serve the public, you need to understand how your government works. And if you don't do that, then you're, you know, you're shirking your duty. Any political leader has to know how the country's laws work. In a uh, public health crisis, you're going to have, at a minimum, at least two leaders. You're going to have the political leader, and you're going to have the public health leader. And it is up to the two leaders how they uh, work together and how they respond. It's not... A crisis is not the time to be establishing a relationship. In the case of the political leader, now the ultimate responsibility lies with the political leader, and it is up to them to appoint qualified individuals to head the agencies or bureaucracies to which they are responsible for. And so the politician then decides how much decision-making responsibility he or she is going to delegate to their appointees. Do we have any examples from the past of more successful approaches? Like I'm thinking back, it's been a while since I thought about SARS or MERS or those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was different about the leadership then? Well, the U.S. dodged the SARS bullet for whatever reason. We did not really have to deal with SARS. Um, The country that did have to deal with SARS was Canada. They were hit very hard, particularly in Toronto. They have a very different government set up yeah. than we do, of course. Their public health infrastructure is much stronger than ours. And, uh, and they also, while SARS was deadlier than the current COVID-19 crisis, people weren't able to transmit it if they, were, if they didn't have symptoms. So in some ways, it was easier to contain as opposed to COVID-19 which is similar to influenza and in that people who don't have symptoms can still be highly infectious. And that makes containing that, this pandemic much, much harder. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to step back for a second to the science just because I've written about your work before, so I understand it pretty well, but can you, can you talk more about the one health initiative and why that's so important? The, sure. the connecting dots. Yeah. Sure. Well, What we are currently doing is we are running around putting out the viral fire. 
we are not thinking strategically about how best to live in our microbial world. The One Health Initiative grew up organically. For me, two events, the West Nile virus outbreak of 1999 that emerged in New York City and the anthrax crisis of 2001, both microbes, the West Nile virus and anthrax, again, are zoonotic diseases. They are diseases of animals that infect humans. And yet in my research, I discovered that physicians and veterinarians rarely, if ever, talk to each other. And departments of health, agriculture, and the environment rarely, if ever, work together either. Yeah. So many of these diseases, these emerging diseases, of course, with some uh, uh, exceptions, particularly the, the coronaviruses and influenza, they are emerging either directly or indirectly through our consumption of meat and other animal proteins. They are either, they're either coming from wildlife and eating wildlife directly, or they're coming from our food animals and yet our government infrastructure is not set up to handle this type of interdisciplinary challenge. We solely focus on humans. We primarily do surveillance on humans, and we don't do a very good job of that. And, and so uh, we're always surprised, and we are always running around uh, after the fact trying to deal with one crisis after another. We really need to figure out how to meet our protein needs in an ecologically yeah. sustainable way. Uh, and we're not doing that. We don't have the leadership in place to make these difficult decisions, uh, you know, these uh, compromises. We've pulled out of the, the Paris Climate Accord. We've now being withdrawn from WHO, shockingly. It's, it's really quite tragic to see what's going on when we are at such a critical period of human history. If we want to leave a sustainable civilization and habitable planet to future generations, we really need to be acting now. This is actually a good segue. I mean, we always ask this question on the show about policy recommendations. And I mean, we could probably sit here and list so many given what you just said but what are you know what are does the book offer policy recommendations do you have anything you'd want to share you know well uh, I have a couple of recommendations first and foremost who you vote for matters it can mean the difference between life or death you really want to have somebody who has your best interests at heart who cares about the public who wants to uphold the law. Uh, we live in a highly technologically advanced society. They need to at least listen to the scientists because if they don't, mayhem's going to ensue and you're going to have a lot more deaths. And so if you wanna be a citizen of a functioning democracy, you need to know how your government works. You need to be engaged. This isn't a spectator sport and you need to vote for the most qualified person who's going to uh, provide you with the best protection. If in a microbial world, we need to learn how to live in it better. And uh, I don't have time in this 
uh, podcast to go into great detail about, about that, but we need to start thinking about how we are going to sustain agriculture, sustain food security and civilization in a, in a warming planet. Um, that's going to be a tall order, and we want to do it without unleashing more deadly diseases upon ourselves. Uh, and again, that ties together agriculture, food security, and global health. We generally do not look at all three together. We, we separate them out. And those arbitrary separations need to, be, need to be broken down because they are so integrally related together. I mean, that's a big part of the One Health Initiative is the recognition that the health, that our health is inextricably linked to the health of animals and to uh, our environment. So those are all very tall orders. Well, we're running about out of time, but before we wrap up, I'm, I just want to get into the motivation for the books. I know you wrote it some time ago and now it's been, you know, a new edition has, is out, but right. back when you started this, what, what were you thinking when you went into the project and you know, how long did it take you to write and who was the target audience for you? Uh, in 2009, I had, uh, I had spent time working in the federal public health. I was briefly at the Food and Drug Administration, and I was briefly at the New Jersey Department of Health. I, I had always assumed that policies were made by the best scientific evidence. And I was quite surprised to learn, particularly at the state level, that policies are often made more by political patronage than by science. And I was really stunned by that. And part of my goal in writing the book was to provide future leaders, um, both in the political and public health worlds, to understand what was going on and ways to make it better. I mean, policies need to be apolitical. They need to be based on data and hard science, not who's providing funding. Um, and that was my original motivation to write the book in 2009. In this current uh, second edition, I was just stunned by the, the leadership or the lack thereof, uh, and I had to write about it. Um, and so that's, that was the impetus for the second edition. And I know on Amazon, it's listed as a medical book under medicine, but it seems like it would be a book that could, that anyone could, yes. would want to read, right? Okay, just make yes. sure. I've, I, I tried to write it. I mean, it, it does have a lot of references, uh, which I think is important to document what, that I'm, what I am saying. Um, but I think everybody should have an understanding of, you know, what's involved with these types of crises because we're going to have more of them. This isn't a, a one-time thing. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to have more and more of them as time goes on. And I think it, the public, it's, it's up to them to really understand uh, what their government should be doing to ensure their health, the health of the animals in the environment uh, and the environment itself, that you know, their health is really uh, linked to animal health and environmental or ecosystem health. So um, that's the... Uh, 
that's the word that I'm trying to get out. Um, basically, I want to leave a habitable planet, an intact civilization for my kids and for future generations. That's what's driving me. And I feel, and my colleagues feel, that One Health is a really important concept that must be shared to improve uh, you know, our, our health and well-being on this planet. Absolutely. That definitely seems like a good ending point for us, unless there's anything else you want to add before we wrap up. No, I think I've pretty much covered it. <laughs> that was a great discussion. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, who's in charge leadership during academics, bioterror attacks, and other public health crises is available where you find books on Amazon, elsewhere. And thank you again for joining me today, Laura. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Rose, for having me. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is edited and produced by me, Rose, and usually recorded by our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, but today I'm recording via Zoom. Uh, We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by WooCast the podcast enterprise of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School.